You know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it or stayed up late at night and worried about it or anything like that, but do you realize how many different kinds of ants there are in the world? I always thought an ant was an ant, you know, they're brown, maybe a little bit black, and they're about this long, and the purpose of life is to step on them, but it turns out that that's not the case. We got an um, ant farm, and I did a little reading on ants to try to educate my kids about ants, and it turns out that there's over 10,000 different kinds of ants. Some are about a uh, one one-hundredths of an inch long, others are about three inches long. I always thought they were all brown or all black, but it turns out some are purple, some are orange, some are striped. Bizarre. Some of these African ants, they're nasty. They, 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 they plow themselves through trees. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger ants. And, and each of these different 10,000 kinds of ants has their own little place in the ecological system. They, they run their societies a little bit different. They eat a little bit different food. They get eaten by other different kinds of creatures. And the major theological question that I've got in life is why? Why? Why do we need 10,000 different kinds of ants in the world? For that matter, why do we need ant eaters in the world? I mean, except to eat the 10,000 different kinds of ants. I mean, these animals, they're 99% nose, if you've ever seen one of them. It's like, why would God create such an interesting looking creature? And I was out fishing, as long as I'm on that subject, out fishing in the ocean several years ago, and I, I, I caught this, uh, I caught this uh, fish that I sure was evidence, I, I, I was convinced it was evidence that the ocean we were fishing in was, had radioactive material because this thing was deformed, if I've ever seen a deformed fish. It had two, it was like a Picasso fish. It had two eyes on one side of the head, you know. <laughs> it had like mouth over there. It looked like a fish that got ran over by a tire, by a truck, only it survived. Can you help me out a little bit? And my friend said that that's just the way this kind of fish is. This is a flounder fish, and it's part of, it's just a, this is, it lays on the bottom of the ocean, and it looks up. And so it needs both sides, both eyes on the side of the head. And it's interesting. But why do we have this kind of diversity? We've got the different kinds of trees, and why are no two snowflakes alike? And every kind of blade of grass is a little bit different. The diversity of birds, and the elephants, and horses, and there's just this incredible diversity. The only answer I can think of, and I can think of it because it comes right out of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is that God likes to display his artistic genius. He's got a creative artistic flair. Whereas a boring artist maybe would paint things and color things with just one mold, God seems to get a kick out of diversifying the, 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 the landscape. Making it interesting. So he spends time designing new and novel ways of doing things. It shows for us some of the beauty of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the creativity of God. And people also show forth the glory of God. In fact, in a special kind of way. Because we're made in God's image. So you've got all different kinds of people. You've got some people who are extroverted. They're out there. They're kind of, you know, always out there. They've got a lot of energy. Then you've got people who are very shy and quiet and, and unassuming. And, and you never know they're there unless you bump into them and they're just sort of behind the scenes. Like me, I'm one of those kind of people. <laughs> yep. And then you've got people who are left-brain thinkers, and you've got people who are right-brain thinkers, and you've got people who are middle-brain thinkers, I suppose, and then you have always people who are no-brain thinkers. But <laughs> Some people are very logical and analytic, and some people are very intuitive and feeling, you know, and, and, and they approach a problem, they want to kind of feel it, you know. And uh, they're, they're, they're just different. You've got people who are idealistic, and then you've got people like, like Mary Van Sickle, who's very, very practical. 
What's interesting is that Steve is very idealistic, and we have interesting church meetings because <laughs> Steve dreams the vision, and Mary always says, how? They're, they're just very different, very unique, very special. <laughs> and you've got people with different kinds of talents. You've got some people who have got you know, an ability to sing, and some people have less of ability to sing, and then you've got people who can draw wonderful and people who don't, can't recognize a crayon from a cannon, and then you've got people who can you know, run fast, people who can't run fast. And we've got physical differences as well. Multitudes of physical differences. Every one of us is a little bit physically different. But you've got some people who are tall, really tall people. And you've got some people who are incredibly short. Even when they're growing up, they're just incredibly short. You've got some people who are very, very slender and skinny. And then you've got other people who are a little more uh, wide. They just have a bit of a body shape. You've got some people who are very strong and other people are very weak. You've got some people who have got really interesting long noses, and you've got other people who have got very interesting short noses. You've got some people who have got real long necks, and then you've got some of these football players who don't have a neck at all. You know, all this kind of different diversity. People with blue eyes, people with brown eyes, people with black eyes. You've got people with nice oval eyes, and you've got people who have got little slanted eyes. You've got people with curly hair, and the more they sweat, the curlier it gets. And you've got people with really straight hair. And then, yes, we have people who don't have any hair at all. But you know what? Here's the point. The world is a lot more interesting because of that. It'd be very, very boring. As much as sometimes we think we'd like it, it'd be really boring if the world was a replica of us. Very uninteresting, very unexciting, and it would not display the glory of God as well and as perfectly as does the diversity. It's like the light has to be refracted in the colors of the rainbow to appreciate the full glory of the light. And so God's beauty and God's greatness and God's artistic genius is displayed in the explosion of kaleidoscopic colors that make up the mosaic of human beings. That sounded pretty good, didn't it? That was kind of like a poem. The kaleidoscope, I can't say it again, but a kaleidoscope, it's like a rainbow. There's a diversity here, a multiplicity here, and the point is, is that Genesis 1 says the whole thing is good. The whole thing is beautiful. The whole thing was designed like that. It displays the glory of God. But the world is not exactly as God created it. The world is a fallen world. And that means that sin has entered into the picture. And what sin always does is this. Sin takes the multiplicity and diversity of God's beautiful creation and tries to make something evil out of it. Tries to divide it. Tries to rip apart the colors of the rainbow. Tries to tear apart the mosaic. And here's why. Because sin is pride. As we were originally created... We need to feel important. We need to feel significant. We need to feel accepted and loved. We need to feel unique. That's a God-given thing, and that's okay. Because the way God created us is so that we would get that from being related to God. If we have a pure, unbroken relationship with God, I've got all the love and significance and worth and feeling of specialness and feeling of acceptance I could ever need. But sin blocks the relationship with God. It clouds it up. In some cases, it totally destroys it. What that means is this. I've got to look to other ways to feel important, to feel significant, to feel all right, to feel accepted. One of the ways that people have always done this is by looking at what makes them distinctive, making it, raising it above others, lowering others, and that creates the illusion that they're special. It creates the illusion that they're better. So I define goodness according to my attributes, which means that they're not defined according to your attributes. That makes me special. I feel loved. I feel important. 
but it also makes you a low life. If you don't think like me, something's wrong with the way you think. And if you don't look like me, something's wrong with the way you look. If you don't wear your hair like me, something's wrong with the way you wear your hair. If you don't like the kind of music I like, something's really weird about you. And we set up walls upon walls upon walls upon walls that, dis- that, that, that destroy, compromise, abrogate the beautiful diversity of God's creative genius. And the number one way this has always been done throughout history, one of the most fundamental ways that people have hit upon false gods, people have lived out pride, people have gotten idols. That's anything we get from the world that wasn't supposed to be gotten from the world, that we're supposed to get from God. One of the primary ways, most destructive ways, most petty ways, most menial ways this has ever been done is through racism. What happens is this. I need to feel important. I need to feel special. I need to feel like I'm accepted. So I surround myself with people who look like me. And we define ourselves as the special group. And we feel like we belong because we're with people who are like us. They look like us. They think like us and talk like us. And now we can look down at everybody else. And the lower they are, the more exalted we feel. And we've tried to fill the need that God created in us for God to fill. We try to fill it with our racial identity. And the the history of the human race can almost be described as the history of people, of races and nationalities rising up against others because they don't look like them, talk like them, think like them, and making them subjects. We saw last week with the Jewish nation, they were called by God to be special and unique. Yes, that's true. What happened was that they began to get their life from, not God, but from their distinctiveness. And therefore, they began to look down on the Gentiles and the rest of the world because they weren't Jewish. And they called them the uncircumcised and the unclean Gentiles and referred to them as dogs. And whereas God always wanted Israel to be a people that would reach out to the entire world and bring his love to the entire world, Israel got locked up, self-centered, and racist. And that destroyed the purpose of God that God wanted to use Israel for. But it wasn't just the Jews who were racist. Most people, most of the time, most nationalities have been, to some degree at least, racist. So you have a man like Cicero, who was a great Gentile poet and a great Gentile philosopher, and he said this. He said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are Romans, and then there are the others. And the others he called barbarians. He called them barbarians because he thought the way they talked sounded like bar, 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 bar. Other languages do tend to sound like that if you don't know the language. But he he referred to them as barbarians, bar talkers. And he said, either a Roman or you're somebody else. And if you're somebody else, that's too bad. But your purpose is to be subject to Romans. Because Romans are the highest, the best, the brightest, the superior beings. And that kind of thinking, that kind of tribalism has characterized the history. Our century is not exempt from it. In fact... Though a lot of people have the illusion or or want to believe the illusion that we've somehow evolved and we're better than previous generations, we're smarter and wiser, it simply isn't the case. And all you've got to do is look around you a little bit, look at the history of this century, and see that we have not progressed at all. If anything, we've worsened the racist tendencies that are in fallen human nature. We've had more blood shed, more murders committed in the name of race in our century than in any other century. You have Nazi Germany, which tried to exterminate the whole Jewish race. You have Pol Pot and, and, and uh, the Khmer Rouge, who tried to exterminate all Cambodians. You have the, the, the racial warfare is going over in Bosnia, and it's all around the globe. And the U.S. isn't exempt from it. We don't have that kind of murderous warfare going on. 
that these other nations and other cultures sometimes have, but we may. But in the U.S., I mean, it is the, it is the case. The, the, the Benai Brief League reports that, that racially motivated hate crimes have, have increased fourfold since 1975 up to 1993. They've quadrupled. That's some concern. It's also the case that neo-Nazism is, is rising very fast among the younger generation in America. Also, and especially over in Germany, it's raising its ugly head again. This is scary stuff. What's scary stuff is that there are people who think who aren't brain damaged to believe it. It's cause for some concern there. But the main problem in the U.S., I believe, is way below the surface. It's way below the surface. It's kind of an underlying tension, an uneasiness. You talk about race, people kind of start to tiptoe. They'll begin to walk on eggs, like, uh, yeah. Um, and, and there's this kind of tension there. And it's not usually overt, though sometimes it explodes in overt violent acts. But on the whole, it's just sort of an uneasiness. And it seems to me that the more our culture tries to fix it, the more messed up it gets. So no one knows quite what to say, quite what to do, what the rules are. Everyone's uncomfortable around everybody else. And no one says anything. And if they just avoid each other enough, we think that that's peace. But that's not peace. That's just underlying tension. And I think it's all over the place. It's why I think that kind of scary to even preach on the topic because, you know, ooh, this is an explosive one. Watch out. This could be bad. This, you know, it's all under there. Now, you wouldn't know it just by looking around, but, but there's this tension there, and it leads forth in certain attitudes and behaviors, and I don't see our culture fixing it very well. The final thing and the saddest thing is this. The church in America, and let's just be real, okay? The goal of preaching is just to be real, to say what is. And what's real is this. The church in America is no more integrated than America is. The same tension, the same awkwardness is there in the church. Over 98% of all churches are almost 98% homogeneous. And we can think, we can easily rationalize this and say, well, you know, come on. I mean, people are naturally comfortable around people who look like them. People, you know, just get along better with people who kind of just go along with their own culture and, and that kind of thing. So that's not a bad thing. Let's just kind of keep it that way. It avoids problems. And there's even different think tanks out there in the U.S., that are saying that if you want your church to grow and be successful, then it shouldn't be integrated. Target homogeneity as a, as a principle of church growth. you got to target the whites, or you target the blacks, or you target the American Indians, or you target the Hispanics. But don't target all of them. It will never work. It will never work. you got to keep things segregated. you got to keep them separated. Yeah, some of you know that song. Uh, the offspring. You've got to keep them separated. You know, let's not get things too mixed up. So it's natural. It's, it's the way it ought to be. And I, I just got to tell you, I, point blank, let me just go ahead and spill it out. I think that stinks. I just think it stinks. I think it stinks. If, in fact, if, in fact, this destruction of God's kaleidoscope is a bad thing, if, in fact, this tension between people of different colors is a result of the fall, then how can the church not stand up against it? If the church is to be on God's side and trying to restore God's creation, how can it fail? How can it not? But be against all forms of sin, and how can we not label racism for being what it is, namely sin? It's destructive. It was never meant to be. Therefore, the church must be against it. I hear, I hear this, this church growth principle as one big cop-out, sell-out compromise. It's like saying, you might as well say, since when, since when is it the church's job to make people feel comfortable, first of all? 
I thought it was our job to make people feel uncomfortable. I mean, if the church ever gets into the business of making people feel comfortable, we can just kiss goodbye any kind of principle we have about preaching the truth because the two aren't compatible. You either stand for truth or you stand for making people comfortable, but you can't do both. And you might as well have a church that is uh, targeted towards, let's say, uh, uh, greed, greed, greedy people. And don't preach against greed because that makes greedy people uncomfortable. But hey, God loves those greedy people, so let's try to reach the greedy people. Let's have a greedy church. And we'll preach on every other sin that we're not involved in. Just stay away from the greed. Or like a gossipy church. Gossipy people feel most comfortable when they're around other gossipers. Have you ever noticed that? Gossipy people love to be around other gossipers because then they can gossip and they don't have to feel bad about it. So let's have a gossip church. Huh, let's just sell out. Let's, let's try to save the gossipers by not talking about gossip. Preach on other sins. We can preach, about, we can preach against greed in that church, but this is for the gossipers. But you see, it doesn't work that way, folks. God calls the body of Christ to stand for truth, to stand for something, to have a little backbone, to have a little bit of character. And that means coming against all forms of things that destroy God's creation that the Bible calls sin. And I refuse to believe, and let me just go ahead and, and just say it the way, the way it is in my heart and not even worry about how you're going to receive it. Maybe it'll make you uncomfortable, but I refuse. I refuse to believe that the body of Christ can't do any better than the society. I'm so sick of the church following the fads of the culture, you know? And I refuse to believe that we've got to inherit the kind of walls that the, that the culture has. I refuse to believe that we've got to inherit the kind of petty thinking, the kind of myopic mentality that characterizes sinners. You expect that. But in the church, I've got to believe that we can do better. And I, can't, I refuse to believe that people who are filled with God's grace, experience salvation, know that they were dead in sin, but know that they're raised up in Jesus Christ, who know what their calling is and are filled with the love of God. I refuse to believe that we can't do any better than the world is doing. We've got to sell out and compromise for the purpose of getting nice, comfortable numbers. I refuse to accept that. My own conviction, my own conviction is that uh, the church has got to pray towards, preach towards, and strive towards racial integration. And I don't see that as just being sort of a footnote thing. I think that's part of the heart of the church. And I want you to hear this, okay? This has got nothing to do... The reason why the church should do it has nothing to do with the reasons the world gives for trying to do it, which I don't think are working very well. This isn't about being Democrat or Republican. It's not about being liberal or conservative. It's not a, it, it has nothing to do with whether you think the welfare program is working or whether you think it's being butchered. It has nothing to do with what you think about you know, different programs that are going on in, in, in attempts to, to solve this thing. It's got nothing to do with politically correct speech or behavior or, or talk codes or whatever. What it's got to do with is the identity of the church that Jesus Christ has bought for himself. And part of that identity is found right here in Ephesians chapter 2. where The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross in order to make a new humanity, a new race of people. And I've got to believe that if the, if that is true, in fact, if Jesus, in fact, destroyed the walls of hostility and reconciled the enemies of racial hatred, if Christ has, in fact, done that on the cross and thereby won for himself, created for himself a new humanity, I have to believe that that has to have some implication in the church, the way the church looks like. Think of it this way. 
if I'm born again, doesn't that have to eventually, to some small degree, make a difference in the way I behave? Uh, you know, granted, I, I don't and you don't live out perfectly our redemption nature, okay? We struggle with it. But we're going in a certain direction. Because the born-againness isn't just a hypothetical thing, it's a real thing. And so if I am in reality born again, it has to be the case that to some extent in practice, I live born-againness. And if I'm filled with the Spirit, that's got to have some implications in my life. And if I've been given the righteousness of God and freed from sin, that's got to have some implications in my life. If it's true in principle, it's got to begin to be true in fact. So also, if Jesus Christ within his body has in fact reconciled enemies, has torn down the wall of hostility, and has in fact created a new, new humanity, how can the church systematically fail, systematically fail to bring that about, to begin to display that, at least systematically fail to begin to work towards it? The biblical teaching is this. God has created a new race of people, a new man. And that man is within him. It is his body. It is his presence here on earth. It is called the church. And it very literally is a new race of people. And it's not a white race or a black race or a brown race or an orange race or an Asian race or a South African race. It's a race of Jesus people. It's a race where, where we're born from the seed of God, not from the seed of any person with a certain nationality. We are, the Bible says, very literally now born from the seed of God. Born, a seed that comes from the will of God that the Bible says is, is imperishable. And this, this new race that all of us are in, this new race didn't originate in Africa or in Europe or in Russia or in Finland or Japan. It originated in the very heart of God, in the very heart of God. And if this new race is any color at all, it's the color red. Because it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that it gets brought into being. Jesus Christ dies on the cross to produce this new humanity. And this new race of people, Lord, help me to talk about it right now. This new race of people, what we have in common is so incredible, so great, so noteworthy that whatever we might have not in common would be rendered at worst irrelevant, but at best would actually contribute to the beauty. It's like this. Why, I, I wonder, why is it that we hit on facial, facial or, or, or skin color as a criteria for, for, for the differences, and not color of hair? Why do we have races based on color of hair? You know, we're the blonde race, and we're the brunette race, and we're the red race, you know? Why not that, or eye color? But, but, you know, when you get together with a bunch of people who have the same skin color as you, you don't even notice the different hair colors and stuff because for some odd, I think, very petty reason, we, we notice what we have in common, and that's our whiteness or our blackness or our whateverness. Well, in the church of God, what I'm saying is this. We've got a Lord in common, a salvation in common, a shared blood in common that is so great, so glorious, a salvation that is so grand in a spirit within us that is so powerful. That every other little minuscule difference that we might have, like culture and like skin color and like lifestyle and, and different ways of doing things, are rendered utterly, utterly, utterly irrelevant. Because what we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's created in us a new humanity. A humanity that's distinctive because all the people begin to look like him. But in their own particular racially distinct way. And they begin to have the character like him. And this is a race that is distinct because of the way that it tears down walls. 
the way that it just tears down those, the way it transcends those kind of petty cultural barriers, the way that it, the way that it brings peace to different peoples, the way that it displays God's universal love. And this, I believe, is part of the very heart of the church. Part of the very heart of the church. It was the heart of Israel. Israel was supposed to be doing this. Isaiah 55, we read it last week. Anyone who wants to come, come one, come all, eat and drink. Anyone who wants, and he says in 56.3, do not let the foreigner think that he doesn't belong to Israel. He's the one you're reaching out to. It was the heart of Israel, and the church is the new Israel. It's got to be a heart, the heart of the church. It was the heart of the ministry of Jesus. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he didn't see people and relate to the people on the basis of the standard cultural distinctions that he was a part of. What he saw was their need. What color they were, what, what race they were, didn't make a bit of difference. What economic status they had didn't make a bit of difference. So he heals the Roman centurion's servant. A Roman, a Gentile. Yick, Jews aren't supposed to like them. And this guy's a leader in an army. Jews really detest them. Jesus sees the need. He goes past all the political squabble and gets to the heart of the issue. This person needs me, and he brings healing. And so it was throughout his ministry. And if we call ourselves the body of Christ, that means that we are his presence here on earth. We're to be doing what the incarnate Lord did on his, in, in his life. That's got to mean that we are moving in the same direction that he moved in terms of tearing down the walls. It's part of the very heart of the church because it was part of the heart of Jesus' ministry, and it was the heart of his death. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. In 1 John 2, 2, he died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. How can the church that proclaims that not be moving in the direction of universality? And it was the heart of the early church. Read the book of Acts. Jesus says you're going to receive power. Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout the whole world. There's a universal thrust there. The Holy Spirit is like an energy that seeks to move beyond cultural barriers and when we stay within those cultural barriers, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That's why, incidentally, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, in Acts chapter 2, they all began to speak in different tongues and people heard them speak in their own language because what the Lord was doing, it was like the Holy Spirit was just sort of giving a little flag there. You know what? When I get moving and when people yield to what I'm about and people start walking in step with me, you're going to find that language barriers start to come down. And you're going to find that cultural barriers begin to come down. And you're going to find that the racial barriers come to, or begin to come down. Because what I'm here to do, the Holy Spirit says, is to bring into your life the truth of what Jesus purchased on Calvary. And what Jesus purchased on Calvary was one new humanity. It's got to impact the church. It's part of the center of what we're, we're to be about. As part of the center of what we've got to be witnessing to as well. John 17, verses 20 through 25 says this. Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. That the world may know that you have sent me. Very powerful prayer. What he's saying is that the credibility of the church, and therefore the credibility of him, to some degree hangs on our unity. To a large degree hangs on our unity. But if it's a unity that the world itself has, a racial kind of unity, how is that a witness? Now, there's a unity that is to characterize the body of Christ that is such that the world cannot give. And precisely by doing what the culture, the world cannot do, we are witnesses to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Here's why this is such a burning conviction on my heart right now. Because I believe that America... We have a window of opportunity. The church has a window of opportunity to proclaim in, in our actions the truthfulness of the Lord by doing what the culture cannot do. 
our culture right now, it's becoming increasingly multicultural. And if, if it follows the pattern of previous cultures, that usually results in increased hostility. If America doesn't do that, it will be one of the first times in history it's ever been done. And I, I don't believe that the programs and the solutions that we're coming up with, trying to fix this, are going to work. And here's why. Because you can mandate the behavior of a person and the speech of a person, but if you don't change the heart of the person, you haven't changed the person. Amen. Amen. And so all you do is you send it undercover. That's where we're at now in America. It's undercover. People are just kind of like this. And it's just looking for an occasion to pop. And as this situation worsens in our culture, and I, I don't want to be cynical, but I think it is worsening, the church has an opportunity to say, you know what, you can't do it. Fallen world can't do it. Programs can't do it. They may be good and great, but they can't solve the problem. But in the body of Christ, there's a unity and there's a love that the world cannot give because there are people who have got changed hearts. And that's one of the ways the world's going to take notice and say, you know what, they got something going on there because they have achieved what we could never achieve. We've got to be going in that direction. Now, how to do that? I'm an idealist. I'm not a Mary Van Sickle. So, Mary, would you come up here and tell us how to... No, how to look at... Let me just say this. Number one, one way to go about it is just to stand up for truth. Stand up for truth, preach truth, say what is real, and preach the truth. That itself begins to bring about the reality that you're preaching about. The Bible says, my word will not return void. I don't have a lot of programs and a lot of gimmicks and a lot of you know, things to... I don't think that's the job of the professional ministers to have. You know, we've preached against that before. The idea that it's supposed to be a program run and we're supposed to do it. I don't have anything like that. What I do have is the gospel and what I do have is, is uh, the audacity to, to speak it and, and to say what is real. Secondly, preach it. Stand for it and pray in that direction. Pray, God. You know, in Revelations 20, you have this beautiful vision of, of all the different nations gathered around the throne, proclaim, just worshiping the Lord in unity. Be praying, God, can you begin to bring that about here? huh? Do you know, I, there's, a, there's a, a, a young lady that came to our church for the first time last week. And uh, um, after the sermon last week, she came up and she kind of asked, you know, she says, well, you know, that, 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 that verse there has a lot of... Uh, racial implications. Why didn't you preach on that? And I said, well, come back next week. But it turns out, she, she is a, uh, a white person. She's adopted several African-American kids, and she's looking for an integrated church. And she says she's been looking around the Twin Cities, and she can't find any. That is so sad. But here's an opportunity for us to be praying in that direction. I can't manipulate it and force it to happen or have some kind of external program, but i got to trust the Spirit of God if we follow the Spirit of God and stand up for the truth and operate out of the love of the gospel that it can become a reality. And it will take a lot of cultural adjustment. It did in the book of Acts. You know, this new thing that they were doing, that was a hard thing. Read Acts 15. Had all sorts of cultural problems to overcome. You're going to have that. Fine. But you've got to have that reality. Be praying that God would begin to bring the vision of Revelation 20 into a reality here. A third thing is this. Ask the Lord to examine your heart. And very honestly, just look within. And see, is there something in you? that Are, are, are you yourself, am I myself, to some degree influenced by, if not a total slave, to the sort of petty cultural assumptions that are around us? And ask the Lord to heal you of that. Racism is like any kind of sin. It needs healing. It needs healing. That's why 
We can no more, I can no more hate a racist than I can hate a homosexual or an adulterer or a gossiper even. I can hate the sin, but I cannot hate the sinner. And they need to be healed. And this has got to be a place where people can even be out loud about how maybe they've been wounded so that they can be healed by it. Sometimes, and this is why our cultural approach, our culture seems to believe. Hang with me for one more minute, okay? When you slap a label on somebody, you fixed it. You're a racist, as though that's, that, that's the end of the problem. You maybe diagnose the problem, but you haven't solved the problem. Calling someone a racist doesn't fix anything. It probably just aggravates them. What needs to happen is you have to ask the further question, but you have to be able to be out loud about stuff. You have to ask the question, why are you a racist? Why do you have, why are you afraid of African Americans? Or why are you afraid of white people? Or what is it about American Indians that, 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 that makes you run in the other direction? Ask the question. And sometimes there's a wound there. There's a wound, there's an experience there. And just slapping a title on them saying, you've got to change. That's not how we move out of any kind of sin. Just saying, giving a person a do. It takes healing. Ask the Lord to begin to heal you of this. Whatever experience it was. So you can begin to treat people in the body of Christ as individuals and throw off the sort of self-protective stereotypes that we have and treat them as individuals. Ask the Lord to heal you. The final thing is just follow the Spirit of God. I'm naive enough to believe that the body of Christ, you are the, the, the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and the Spirit of God moves in each one of us if we listen. And I've got to believe that if God's really in favor of this, he can, if we yield to him, begin to bring about this reality at Woodland Hills Church. Let the Holy Spirit use you. I told this person I talked with last week, I said, you know, maybe the Lord's calling you not to an integrated church, but to a church to help it become integrated. Our motto is, if you see a need, meet it. And maybe you have a gift for bringing that about as a reality. Begin to move in that. And I don't have a program for you. I don't have, you give me the program. I'll help you. But let God use you. And when you see a person of color in, in, in the Woodland Hills congregation, know this. They may have, they may not, but they may have all sorts of things they got to get over if they're ever going to become part of this body. And it's hard for us sometimes, us white folks, to understand that. Talked to a person last week, or two weeks ago now, who came up and, and just said, you know, uh, uh, my wife and I really feel comfortable in this church, and, and we really like this church. And then he asked, now, are, are you okay? I, I'm in a mixed marriage, and are you okay with that? And the, the only thing that caught me was, it would never occur to me to think that that would be an issue for anybody. But then again, if I walked into a church where everybody was a mixed relationship, I'd probably feel a little uncomfortable. Understand the unique issues that they have to confront to become part of a body like this, and let the Holy Spirit use you to go out of your way to show them, demonstrate that this is a place where it's safe and they're accepted because we are all one race. And it's time that the local body begins to display that. To regain the beautiful kaleidoscope, the mosaic, the rainbow of God's creation at Woodland Hills. Let's pray. Father, I can't make this happen. Uh, words can't make it happen. I don't have a gimmick. I don't have a program. None of us do, Lord. And there's a demonic spirit, Lord, that is invested in the, in the culture, in the Twin Cities even, that promotes the separation, the hatred, the war, and it kills kids every week. Lord, do warfare for us to begin to tear down these walls, Lord. And God, our prayer is that 
our church, this church, this local body could begin to look more like Revelations 20, Lord. Lord, I pray for healing for those who have racial scars in their life, God. Through your love, and only your love can do it, Lord, begin to heal them. And God, bring about a racial unity here, Lord God. Put in our minds a vision, a direction, maybe some practical things that we can do to begin to bring it about. We want to glorify you, Lord. And we know, Lord, that color glorifies you. We'll make this, Lord, a colorful church. We ask in your name. Amen.